Chapter 8. A Dog Fight, Brutality and Poverty We were working down Deansgate in order to arrive at the Gaythorne district, and while, in Lombard Street, had a somewhat narrow escape from a vicious bulldog that was ensconced under a sofa in one of the houses we looked into. He would have exercised his talents upon our calves in a very short space of time had he not been kicked into a corner by his master. I was half afraid of the brute making a second attempt upon the unprotected lower man, but he contented himself with growls and snarls, not loud but deep, and his sonorous chest notes furnished a base accompaniment to our conversation. He was full of years, but still had the indomitable pluck of his race, and I learned that he was the hero of at least a hundred fights. Mac knew him and his master well, and over a social pipe he narrated some of his experiences in the matter of dog-fights in the Deansgate locality. Seeing that we were his master's friends, the surly bull came into the circle we had formed round the fire, and stretched himself across the hearth, but whenever I moved he admonished me by a smothered bark, strangled in his throat, to remain still and not destroy the effect of the story. "'It was a thing that was all the go at one time,' said Mac, "'and every booze shop, beer house, in Wood Street and Spinningfield, "'used to have their garrets fitted up for dog-fights regular every week. "'It was known well enough when a match was coming off, "'and we used to get many a swelling who didn't mind paying for it. "'It was always at the top of the house that we brought the fight off, and at night, when there was plenty of row in the street to prevent any noise being heard. Not from the dogs, they had too much to do with each other to kick up any shine, but occasionally the backers would go half mad, excited-like, and would scream and hoot to keep up their particular favourite. One night we had a gathering at the ship, for Cockney Charlie had got a pup he swore couldn't be licked, and a Wigan, Wigan, bloke, had matched an olden against it for a fiver, five-pound note. It was a big do, and there were forty or fifty of us packed in garret, and coin was laid freely, for both dogs were clippers. Just before they were loosed, Cockney Charlie offered long odds on his pup, and to rile him, some of us said we wouldn't rob him, for we knew his animal would be fair beaten. He was so savage that he cried out, Boy, if pup loose, I'll smash it! But we never thought he would. Well, fight went on, and the youngster had the best of it for a bit, but the Wigginan was too much for it at finish, and in last set two, left it on floor half dead. The pup was bitten frightful on head and shoulders, but might have got over it. Cockney Charlie was as good as his word, for he went out, tried pup with another dog, and cause it was licked, jumped on his favourite, and it went dead soon after. I inquired if anything of the kind could be seen now, but Mac said it had been all over now for years as the houses had been closed where it was carried on. Men like Cockney Charlie can no longer enjoy their amusement. The action of the police in disestablishing these low drinking shops has evidently done good in more ways than one. We struck down Deansgate itself after leaving Lombard Street, and after a few minutes' walk we turned into Gaythorn Street, which gives the name to a thickly populated district, bounded on the one side by a blank wall which fences off the canal, and runs from Deansgate right through to Albion Street, and, on the other, by the railway arches which extend along Hewitt Street, and several of which have been converted into dwelling-houses, a cowshed, a coal-depot, etc. I was told beforehand that I should meet with few actual thieves in this quarter of the city, in spite of the fact that it was once as notorious as the street. 
and I found that my information was correct. Criminals have been cleared out, and in this place resides a population, rough and turbulent truly, but honest so far as their lives are known. They are as completely poverty-stricken as any of the poorest among us, and their abodes are, as a rule, without comfort or any of the little home luxuries that the hard-working classes can sometimes afford to indulge in. They are a quarrelsome race, too, and yet so clannish that when a street row takes place, the police have always a difficult task to restore peace, much less to arrest the leading spirits. It would scarcely be an exaggeration to say that more assaults upon men in uniform are reported from the Gaythorn streets than any other single quarter. It is like putting one's hand into a bag of snakes to draw out an eel, for a constable to take into custody the leader of one of the drunken broils that are of so frequent occurrence here. I had only the address of one celebrity in this new field, and that was Auntie Mary, who was said to be keeping a disorderly house in Abraham's Court, Gilbert Street. To the court we repaired, but upon entering the house where I had understood she could be found, we discovered that our bird had flown a few days before. Two decent-looking women peered at us suspiciously over the solitary candle on the table, and told us that Auntie's carryings-on had given such offence to the neighbours that a complaint had been lodged, and after receiving a gentle admonition from the police, she had deemed it best to flit. The women were eager to unfold the tale of Auntie's wrongdoings, and with a volubility that only the love of scandal could have created, poured forth how she had been sent to prison for bad conduct when living near Campfield Library, how she had no business to have come into the court at all, in short, how wicked she was in all her doings. I was sorry I could not meet Auntie, as I was in hopes of gaining some valuable knowledge from her as to the haunts of the few friends she had in Gaythorn. But, being disappointed in this, I asked Mac to guide me through the worst streets, on spec, to see what was the character of the inhabitants, and if, as report stated, there were any cellar-dwellings still in existence. Our first place of call was a huckster's shop in Commercial Street, but we were most positively assured that they were all workers who lived in the adjoining streets, and, if poor, were honest. This was unsatisfactory from one point of view, as my object was crime and not poverty, but having no choice, I thought I would for once sacrifice Barabbas for Lazarus, and give up my search for the thief, for the sake of his brother, the poor man. Before leaving the shop, I had gained an insight into the mysteries of Gaythorn bookkeeping, for on the black-leaded mantelpiece were chalked a number of hieroglyphics, as puzzling to the outsider and to the uninitiated as the characters on the Moabite stone itself. Ciphers and crosses were abundant, but few plain figures could I see. Rows of ciphers straggled across the bricks, colliding with others that had wandered from their proper course, and struggling with the crosses which seemed to have been dropped about wherever the fancy of this artist in chalk had willed. And yet, as Max sagely whispered, Every nout means something, and many a weary housekeeper must have looked with dismay at seeing the little white circles increasing day by day. I counted fifteen in one row, and wondered who the unfortunate victim was who had thus rashly run into debt. The scent of onions, bloaters, sour butter and pickles was too powerful to allow me to solve the problem, or of discovering the value of X, that unknown quantity, and we departed at once. We passed from Jordan Street to Mount Street, and in the latter thoroughfare we found cellar-dwellings still in vogue. 
down about half a score of steps, we picked our way into a kind of area with small arches, formed by the steps leading from the footpath to the houses overhead, causing us to stoop every other minute. Light shone from crevices in the window shutters, and at last we entered one cellar wherein we could hear voices. It was like stepping into an oven, for the confined air was superheated by a large fire in an extensive grate in the right-hand wall, and apparently there were no means of ventilation. A man, who to judge from his clothes and blackened face, was an engineer, was talking to his wife, and a child was sitting near them. The walls were bare and damp-looking, and the ceiling, brown with smoke and dust, was so low that my hat almost touched it. A small table and a few chairs, with a low uninviting bed, constituted the furniture, and it was the old story of living and sleeping in the same room, and that some eight feet below the street level. It was close and uncomfortable enough for October, but what it would be in cold weather, when every chink and cranny would be carefully stopped to keep out the cold fresh air, I should not like to say. Coming up again to the street level, we turned into an entry, and were soon in a small yard, with two-storey cottage tenements of the meanest kind. At the door of one of these, an urchin of tender years, was standing in a state of nakedness, bar the dozen square inches of dirty calico that served him as a tunic. His little body was kept warm with a thin coat of dirt, of a tint between black and brown, that covered him from top to toe with admirable impartiality. We could only catch a glimpse of the kitchen, for there was no light, but the prospect did not tempt me to enter. In the corner of the yard to the left was a small house that seemed to have been built to fill in the space, and for no other reason, for there was really no room for it properly in the yard. The flickering of a flame from the fire shot across the window, and looking in we saw a child seated on the hearthstone, warming himself and watching the blaze as it leapt fitfully up the chimney. As I opened the door, another lad came down with a candle, and we could then note how wretched was this apology for a dwelling. The plastered walls were honeycombed with holes, and the dirt and smoke of years encrusted them. There were three small tables and two chairs in the place, and so small was the room that these alone almost filled it. Noticing a bundle in the corner, I asked one of the lads if it was a bed, and he answered, Yes, father sleeps there, and mother and us upstairs. More complete poverty I had never beheld, and yet the parents were not drunken or improvident, for the children said they were then away at a teetotal meeting. This house I found to be typical of many more, for in one the door could not be opened more than a foot, as it came in contact with the poles of the bed, across which a thin veil was hung, to prevent aught being seen from outside, and in another two children, both very ill, were sleeping on a sofa, while the mother herself sat upon the bed, waiting till her husband should come in for the night. Along Cheetham Street, with the railway viaduct frowning down on us, we proceeded, and thence into Backsmith Street, with its disused cellar dwellings, with areas six or eight feet wide and deep, guarded with strong iron railings, and with long narrow bridges leading to the adjoining houses. As queer a place to look at as any in Manchester, for it is unique in construction and has almost the appearance of a skeleton stockade. An old Irish woman does woodcutting in one of the cellars, and we literally dropped in upon her and had a chat. She had not much to say and was rather frightened, so we took our leave pretty quickly. I had had enough of poverty by this time, 
and we finished our ramble by walking up Gaythorn Street and calling in at number 50, once a fearful den under the reign of Fat Helen, away in servitude, but now occupied by honest tenants. Half the houses have been turned into workshops, and every haunt of crooked persons done away with. End of part eight.